Okay, hey, welcome to uh, Big Valley Grace. Welcome to all of you that are watching online. We're glad that you are here. And uh, if this is your first time with us, we're super, um, super glad you're, you're, you're here, okay? Take your Bibles, if you got them, and turn to John chapter 2. If you don't have a uh, Bible, that's okay, for tonight anyway. All the verses will come up on the jumbotrons. Most of them will be inside your, your program. But if you don't own a copy of the Word of God, when we're done, just go into the altar room, we'll give you one. We'll give you your, your own Bible. We want you to have the Word of God for yourself. And I know I say this every uh, weekend, um, nothing wrong with having, you know, the Bible on your smartphone. I've got one on mine. I've got a number of them on my phone. Nothing wrong with that. And I read it often on my smartphone. But when you come to church, or you come to a men's Bible study or a women's Bible study or you go to your home group, you always want to have this. You want to have the book so you can make notes in it. You can write in it. I have got, I don't even know how many. I'm going to say 15 or so Bibles in my office that are old and the bindings have come off. But I keep them because they're just loaded with notes from sermons and things, conferences that I went to, and I, I actually recorded what God was doing in my life at that moment. The, the, this, this book became like a diary, if you will. And so we want you to have a Bible. All you gotta do is go in there. If you're watching online, come down to the church on Monday or Tuesday, and we'll give you, um, we'll, we'll give you one, okay? So here's the deal. Here's what I wanna do tonight. There's basically th- three things I wanna try to accomplish. Number one, I want to unpack uh, what is called the Passover for you. If you're somebody who knows Christ as your Savior, you ought to know what the Passover is. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that tonight. I want to unpack a day uh, in the life of Jesus where he got really angry. He got angry at some people. And he got angry for a reason. And, and, and And I think that there's application for us today. And then the last thing I want to do is we'll just end maybe on getting on our knees and allowing Jesus maybe to speak to us in a special way. We've spent all this time listening to some sacred music. Music where all of the lyrics are God-honoring. And that's had an impact on your life. We spent some time praying and we've brought gifts to the Lord. We've remembered Christ in communion. We're going to honor him, worship him through the proclamation of his word. And I just believe that when we're done, it just might be that God will have something to say to you as we just kind of maybe have a quiet time uh, towards the end, okay? So let's jump right in and look at our text, okay? John chapter 2, look at verse 13, verse 13, okay? We'll start there. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. So Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep cattle. He scattered the money changers' coins over the floor, and he turned over their tables. And then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my 
father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from scripture. Passion for God's house will consume me. And that's found in Psalm uh, 69. But the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up again. What? They exclaimed, it took, it took 46 years to build this temple and you can rebuild it in three days? But when Jesus said this, this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus said. And we'll stop right there, okay? Now let me uh, just slow things down and, and, and make sure we, we don't miss the, the picture of what Jesus does here. Because if you really understand this moment, it, it can literally change your life. You see, this just wasn't a, a vignette of the life of Jesus 2,000 years ago, and we're just gonna read it, and it really has no implications for our lives today. Because it does. And I think when I get to the end of this thing, you're gonna go, wow, I'd never thought about that. This is more than just some story. If you really get it, if you really understand why God had John record this moment, I'm telling you, change your life, change your marriage, change your, 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 your I don't know, your future marriage, if you're single, literally can change your, your, your life. It's a story of what God can do in your life today to help transform you into the person that he wants you to be. Let me remind you of what Romans chapter eight says. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. God foreknew you. Before you were ever a twinkle in your parents' eyes, God knew you. He chose you. And he chose you for a, a purpose. And that purpose wasn't that you just sit around and live a carnal life. He chose you, predestined you, that you would be conformed, transformed into the very likeness of his son. Yes, God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you so much he doesn't want to leave you in the condition you're in. God's will for your life is that you would be more and more conformed into the image of his son. And I, I think as we, you know, kind of walk through this story of Jesus cleansing the temple, you'll see how it goes hand in hand with what God wants to do in your life. How this story, God wants to use it in your life tonight to help you become more like his son, Jesus. So all this said, look, everybody look at verse 13 again of our text. Look at, look at verse 13. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. 
So, because of that, because the Passover was coming, Jesus went to Jerusalem. Now, let me unpack the Passover for you because you can't understand this story unless you understand the Passover. There's just a ton of Christians who take this story and take it way out of context. They have no idea what the story really means, what the, what the point of the whole thing is, because they don't understand what the Passover celebration was, was all about. The Passover was basically a holiday where Jews would remember how God set them free from 400 years of bondage to the Egyptians. That's basically what it was. It was just a yearly celebration where they remembered Man, for 400 years, we were in bondage to the Egyptians, and God set us free. That's basically what the Passover was. We have holidays like that. Every year, we put trees in our houses and lights on our, our homes and wreaths on our door and send out Christmas cards to everybody, and it's simply a time when we remember a pretty important day, the day that God became a man and dwelt among us. We remember it every year. Every year, right? Churches are packed every year to remember that moment. Another one might be Easter. Easter is, comes around every year. Christians gather in churches to celebrate and remember the day that God walks out of the tomb. Okay, so, so the Passover was just like Christmas or Easter. It was simply a moment where the Jews would gather together and celebrate the, the moment when God set his people free after 400 years of being slaves in Egypt. For over 400 years, the Jews were, were slaves, and, and finally God raises up Moses to be the one that would set them free. And so Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh, you know, set my people free. God has sent me to tell you, Pharaoh, that enough is enough. Our people have been in bondage for 400 years, and you're going to let the Jews go free. That's what they're remembering. That's what the Passover is all about. So in Exodus chapter 7 through 11, we're told of these 10 plagues that God sent upon the land of Egypt. The first plague was, was blood. In this first plague, the Lord turned the water of the Nile River into blood. You can imagine what that must have been like to see uh, this you know, great river just red. God was trying to get Pharaoh's attention. Hey, hey, you're gonna let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no, I'm not gonna do it. I'm not gonna set these people free. They're gonna be slaves here forever. And so the first plague that God sends is blood. The, the second plague was frogs. And in this plague, the Lord sent frogs throughout the land of Egypt. There were frogs everywhere, imagine, just frogs everywhere. Frogs in your house, frogs in your toilet, frogs in your kitchen, frogs at work. Frogs were everywhere, frogs at the grocery store. Frogs were everywhere. 
And Pharaoh says, not going to do it. Not going to let your people go. The third plague was lice. And this third plague, the Lord sent lice to cover the land. And when Pharaoh's magicians saw this plague, it says in the Bible that they went, whoa, 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 whoa. This really is the finger of God. So even Pharaoh's you know, right-hand men, if you will, began to go, man, th th this is different. We've got a situation here. But Pharaoh says, no, not, not going to do it. The, the fourth plague was flies. In this plague, the Lord sent flies to cover the land. Just, you know, I can be in my backyard enjoying a burger and one fly drives me up a wall. Okay, it's like, you know, I'll cook up another burger and just set it on a plate out in the middle of the, you know, cement, just hoping that the fly will go there. It's like a free meal. But it never works, does it? They always want your burger. That's the, the one they want. But imagine flies everywhere, 24 hours a day, just everywhere, covered everything. The fifth plague was, uh, plague was disease on, on livestock. And in this plague, God sent a terrible disease on all of the cattle. God is through Moses, is trying to let Pharaoh in on something. You're, you're gonna let my people go. Look at all the heartache and misery you're bringing upon your people. All you have to do is set them free. And Pharaoh wouldn't do it. The sixth plague was boils, and in this plague, the Lord sent open sores uh, or, or boils or whatever on the skin of all the Egyptians. I mean, imagine that. This horrible pain. They didn't have like Neosporin back. They didn't have anything like that. Just people with all these open sores everywhere. It's horrible. The uh, seventh plague was hail. In this plague, the Lord sent hail all over the land. And when it landed on the ground, this hail turned to fire. And still Pharaoh said, no, not going to do it. The eighth plague was locusts. Obviously, the Lord sends this miserable plague of locusts all over the, the, the land, just wiped out crops and all the stuff. You can imagine what was going on there. You get to the ninth plague, and it was darkness. God caused it to go dark for three days, and it was the kind of darkness that you could actually feel. I mean, it was dark. Imagine, there's no street lights. You, you, you know, you got a candle, you got those kinds of things, but you t typically might burn those at night. You're just burning, you know, lots of candles because it's just dark, just dark, so dark you can feel it. Now, I think that this was probably really humiliating to Pharaoh because the word Pharaoh means the sun, <laughs> and now it's completely dark. Then you get to the 10th plague. The 10th plague was the, the death of the firstborn. This is where we get to the Passover. Okay? Because Pharaoh wouldn't set the people free, God said he was going to send this angel of death, if you will, to go throughout the land of Egypt and kill all the firstborn sons 
But God tells Moses that if anybody would put blood on their doorpost, when the angel of death came to that house, he would pass over it. The angel of death would pass over that house and the firstborn wouldn't be, wouldn't be killed. Exodus chapter 12 says this. On that night, the night of the 10th plague, if you will, I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. But the blood on your doorposts will serve as a sign, marking the house where you are staying. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. This plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is a day to remember each year from generation to generation, you must celebrate this day as a special festival to the Lord. This is a law for all time. Beloved, God commanded that this moment was to be celebrated every year so that nobody would forget what God did in Egypt. And basically, you know, you would have a, a door you would have the doorposts that went around it. And God said, here's a deal. I'm going to kill the firstborn son. If it was to happen today, I would die. I'm a firstborn son. So it wasn't just little children dying. There were adults dying. There were teenagers dying. There were seniors dying, if you will. If you were a firstborn son, you were dying. God has given Pharaoh all kinds of chances. Just as he's given many of you all kinds of chances to surrender your life over to him. And now he gets to this 10th plague. And he says, Moses, here's the deal. You have your people sacrifice an animal, take the blood and put it on the doorposts. And anytime I show up to that particular house and I see the blood on the doorpost, that's somebody I know who, who believes in me. That's somebody who takes seriously what I've commanded. That, 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 that's somebody who, who understands who I am. And so what I'll do is I'll, I'll pass over this house until I find a door that doesn't have any blood on it. And that'll be the person that loses their firstborn child or their firstborn dog or, you know, cattle or whatever. And then God says, now here's the deal. I don't want you guys ever to forget that moment. Jews, don't ever forget it. I want you to celebrate the day I set you free, the day I passed over all your homes and killed all the firstborn of everybody else because it's after that plague that Pharaoh says, okay, I'll let you go. Now he's gonna change his mind, but he finally lets him go. 
So in our story that I just read, in John chapter two, Jesus goes to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover because they do it every year. So that's where he's at in our story. He's there to celebrate this incredible, this incredible moment. Luke chapter two says this, every year Jesus's parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Of course they went there every year because that's what God told the Jews to do. Every year you, you make your way to Jerusalem and, and celebrate this moment. I haven't missed a Christmas in 57 years. I celebrate it every year. Here we see when Jesus was 12 years old. It's one of the only pieces of literature that we have of Jesus when he was younger. We don't know much about him when he was younger. But what we do know is that his mommy and his daddy took him to Jerusalem every year to remember the Passover. So Jesus is 12 years old. He probably did it when he was one, two, three, four. He's been going to Jerusalem up to that moment for 12 years in a row. And the whole city would be jammed full of people. Some scholars believe that over 2 million people would descend on Jerusalem to celebrate this moment. They, they would come from all the surrounding towns and villages and make their way into Jerusalem. It's a crazy celebration, just unbelievable. Now I want you to know that the Gospel of John records all three of the Passovers that Jesus attends while he's in his ministry. We're reading about the first one. So he basically starts his earthly ministry when he's about 30. He ends when he's about 33. And John is the only gospel that records all three times that Jesus was in Jerusalem celebrating this moment. I'm gonna talk more about that later. So here we have Jesus in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And as I said, some scholars believe there were over 2 million people there. Just, just if you could, I, I want you to imagine this because I'm going somewhere with this. Imagine you're making your way to Jerusalem. And as you get there, just get packed. I mean, this is, this is like the big, this is the big deal. It's like Easter is here, right? I mean, this place is packed. We gotta, get, we gotta hire cops, man, to get cars in and out of our property, out on the street. There's so many cars here. We're parking out by the school, man. We're renting buses to, you know, get people from the school over to here. Two million people jammed into Jerusalem to celebrate this great miracle. Now look at verse 13 again, Okay. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem, okay? He's gonna celebrate this. Keep this in mind. You gotta, gotta think right here, Christian. Think. Put this together. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifice. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Verse 15 says Jesus made a whip from some ropes and he chased them all out of the temple. 
He drove out the sheep and the cattle and scattered, scattered the money changers' coins all over the floor and he turned over their tables. Then going over to the people who sold doves, he said to them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. What's going on here? What's got Jesus so fired up? He, he, he's been going there since he was born. His earliest recollections are going to the Passover. And here he is, all upset. What's going on? Well, here's the deal. When you came to the Passover to worship God and remember what God did in Egypt, you had to bring a sacrifice. God, you couldn't show up empty-handed. And that sacrifice, that lamb or whatever it would have been, had to be perfect. You couldn't bring a, bring a goat that had a, you know, a bad leg, you know. You couldn't bring a, a, a sheep that had a poked out eye. You, you, you kept those at home. God didn't want a sheep with a poked out eye. God didn't want you to bring a gift to him of a three-legged goat. He wanted the best you had. And so if you lived, I don't know, let's say you lived 15 miles out of town, you'd, you'd get your best sheep together and you go, oh man, here's the deal, I could leave them here. I'll just buy a sheep when I, get to, when I get to Jerusalem. I'll just go to the temple and I'll just buy one there. I mean, you didn't want to lug a sheep all the way, you know, 15, 20, 30 miles. And so it was, it was a normal practice that at the time of the Passover, you would have all these people in the temple who were selling goats and sheep and doves or whatever it is that they were selling. And it just, the point of it was to make it easy for the people. And you had to bring a gift of money. So you brought your sacrifice, but then you also brought some money, some coins. But you couldn't use Roman coins because they had the image of Caesar on it. And so you couldn't bring to God a coin with an image of Caesar on it. And so there would be uh, these money changers there that you would give the coins to the money changers and then they would give you temple coins. Then you could take those temple coins and give those in your offering. It happened every year. Well, what's he all upset about? Here's what he's upset about. Over time, didn't happen overnight, but over time, the priests were the ones that inspected all the animals. So if you showed up, you know, and you carried your sheep with you for 15 miles, and you showed up and said, here's my sacrifice. The priests were the ones that determined whether it was perfect or not. And so they'd look at it, and they got an idea in their mind. You know what? What if, no matter what, I'm going to tell them this, 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 nope, 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 this won't work. You need to go right over to that booth over there, and you need to buy a sheep because this one's not perfect enough. And so the average Joe guy was, was just stuck. Well, no, I'm telling you. No, sorry, it doesn't work. You need to go buy a sheep right over there. And some of you have guessed it. The priest was in cahoots with the guy over here selling the sheep. 
And so now the guy over here who would normally sell, let's say, a sheep for, I don't know, a buck, it's the Passover. People got to buy sheep. I'll sell them for 10 bucks now. And the priest and I, will just split the profits. When the money changers, you'd go to a money changer. Jesus didn't have a problem with them making, he understood commerce. He, he got it. He understood if you work hard, you, you deserve to make some money. But these people were ripping each other off. And now they would bring their, their shekels and they would say, I need to exchange these because I have to have an offering. And I, I don't, all I have is this Roman money. And they, the money changers would go, okay. And now they would just take a, um, you know, a, a greater fee. Sure, give us these and we'll give you the temple coins. But you know, if there is a fee involved. And now they were gouging the people. And once again, the, the priests, the religious guys who were in charge of this whole thing knew they were all in on it. So Jesus shows up and he's, he's watching this all go down. He's watching these religious folks that have turned his father's house the very place where the presence of Christ dwelt in the Holy of Holies, and wait a minute, these poor people have come here to worship my father. They're, they're here to worship, and they have to have a sacrifice, and you're ripping them off. You're gouging them. You're, you're taking their, their hard-earned money, and you're making them pay an exorbitant fee to have it changed over to temple money. This made him angry that somebody anybody let alone the religious leaders the priests would allow such crummy activity inside the temple where God lived the temple was a holy place sacred place a place where God said you know what you, you, you gotta come I want you to come I want you to come and worship me. I want you to bring a sacrifice. I want you to do all that. And so the Jewish people, out of their love for God, whatever, they, they show up and now they're just getting ripped off. And that's what made Jesus angry. It wasn't the fact that they were exchanging coins. That was no big deal. It's just they were ripping the people off. It wasn't that they were selling doves or whatever. It was that they were ripping off the people. And that's what made them angry. That's what made him upset. When Jesus walks in and he sees what, what's going on, just breaks his heart. You know, this God of love that we serve, and he is a God of love. There's no doubt about it. He is a God of love. Um, he, he, uh, he's angry. He's angry at people. He's not angry at the goat or the dove or a coin. He's angry at people. The temple was a holy place. It's where God dwelled and here are all these people ripping everybody off. Now, there are three things that you and I can learn from the anger that Jesus had here, okay? Three things. Number one, there are times when it's right to be angry. 
It was right for Jesus to be angry in this situation. They had made his father's house, the temple, unclean. This was worth getting angry over. Beloved, there are some things that happen in our lives that may happen in our culture, that may happen in our society that are worth getting angry over. I find that too many believers are just soft. And they think that somehow, you know, love is that you just never get angry, you never get upset, and you know, what's, whoa, what's the big deal? The Bible does say we're to turn our cheeks, right? Yeah, but you take that totally out of context. Also, Jesus isn't turning his cheek here in this moment. In this moment, Jesus is being very judgmental. He's making a judgment call on how these people are conducting their lives and what they're doing to others. Ephesians chapter four says, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Beloved, there are times we as followers of Jesus need to get angry. We need to get angry at injustice. We need to be angry at that. We need to get angry at immorality. We need to be angry at ungodliness. We need to be angry over the killing of babies inside their mother's wombs. We need to be angry over any and all sin. There are some things that we ought to be angry about. But we need to be careful because righteous anger can quickly turn into something crummy, right? Like bitterness which is why we need to set aside our anger by the end of each day, right? Don't, look, don't let the sun go down on your anger. That's why it says that. If you hang on to it, and you go to bed, and you just, before you know it, now you're goofed up. Your righteous anger has turned into something crummy. That's why you just need to deal with it. So the first thing we learn from this story is that there's a time there are times when it's right to be angry. The second thing we learn is just because something is accepted by society doesn't mean it's acceptable to God. Beloved, all the crummy things that were going on inside the temple were simply accepted. The religious people didn't say anything, they were in on it, but I'm sure there were some who went, man, this is wrong, you know, but they didn't do anything. I don't think every priest, I don't think every religious leader was corrupt. But those that weren't corrupt certainly didn't do anything. They just accepted it, just the way it is. You know, it only happens one time a year, you know, during the Passover. Guess we can let it go. What's the big deal? If I get angry, I'm not gonna be invited to the cool parties anymore. If, if I say something, if I get angry over this, you know, I'm gonna get kicked out of my you know, club. I'm not gonna be invited to play golf with those guys anymore. Man, if I say something, you know, someone's gonna call me a bigot. If I say something, you know, so, so somebody's, you know, gonna call me unloving. I, I don't know what the reasons were, but there just came a moment when no one said anything. And all this ungodliness, this sin, and this crummy stuff was going on right in the temple, right where God's dwelling was. Think that through for a moment. 
And we as believers have to be very careful not to allow what society accepts to impact us. I don't care if everybody's doing it. I don't, I, I don't care what the law says. I don't care what the Supreme Court says. I don't care. I, all I care about is this. This is what I care about. Well, you know, everybody's doing it. 51% of the people voted it in. Who cares? Really? Well, you know, 80% of the people are for it. I, I don't care. What I care about is what, what does this say? And if you have to be the lone voice, then be the lone voice. We're called to reflect the glory of God, not reflect the culture. <laughs> that, that's what we as believers are called to do. And when we see something that's wrong, boy, let, let's be like Jesus. That, that's what we're called to be like, right? We're called to be imitators of Jesus. And he wasn't going to allow what was culturally accepted, what was cool for society, to stop him from speaking up and, and, and saying something. And the third thing we learn is that it's more important to be spiritually correct than politically correct. And the, I guess these two could have gone hand in hand. I separated them out. Look, look, what Jesus did in the temple that day wasn't politically correct. <laughs> okay, but it was spiritually correct. If Jesus would have thought it through politically, not a good move. But what mattered more than anything was what was right spiritually. When it's all said and done, the goal isn't to be on the right side of history, the goal is to be on the right side of Scripture, right? I already know I'm going to be on the wrong side of history on some things. I already know it. But the good news is I'm on the right side of Scripture, and that, that's, that trumps whether I'm on the right side of history or not. I get it. There, there may be a, a wave that will change our country and I'm watching things happen and you're, you're, you're just going to get caught up in the tsunami, Rick. It's happening. It's changed. There's nothing you can do about it. That may be true, but I don't have to go along with it. And I could be a lone voice in the middle of a tornado saying it's wrong. I don't care what society says. I don't care what the law says. I don't care what some judge says. I don't care what 11 Supreme Court justices say. I don't care. Oftentimes, people are wrong. Oftentimes, chief justices and the Supreme Court are wrong. Sometimes, the majority is wrong. They get it wrong. Back in the 1800s, the Supreme Court actually ruled that if you had more pigmentation in your skin than I did, then you weren't considered human. You could be, um, uh, you were just a piece of property. 
The Supreme Court got it wrong. And thank the Lord we got it right later on. But just because a bunch of dudes sitting in a room make a law doesn't mean it's right. And we as believers have to understand there are these moments when we have got to stand up and say something. And by the way, this wasn't, this wasn't a peaceful demonstration. Hey. This is Jesus. Just saying. Just, just saying. I didn't, I, I, John, John was there. He recorded the story. So the first thing we learn from the story is that there are times when it's right to be angry. The second thing we learn is that just because something is accepted by society doesn't mean it's acceptable to God. And the third thing we learn is that it's more important to be spiritually correct than it is politically correct. Now, now here's the key point. Okay, here, here's where we, we bring it all together, right, right here. Uh, the, 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 the key point really hinges on, on, on one thought here, okay? Your understanding of what this story means in your life hinges on one key thought. Here it is. Where is God's temple today? First Corinthians chapter six says, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you, who is given to you by God? You don't belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So, so you've got to honor your temple. Remember, Jesus was all ticked because they weren't honoring the temple where God lived in biblical days, right? You see, many people read this passage, this little story, and they immediately think the church building, that this is the temple today. And it's not. This isn't the temple. When you leave here in five minutes, God's presence doesn't, you know, you know, swirl around in this building waiting for you to show up next Saturday night. If you know Christ as your Savior, you're the temple. You're it. You. God lives in you. In the Old Testament, God's presence was found in a building. It was found in the temple. In the church age today, God's presence is in us. And there's coming a day in the future, Revelations chapter 21 says, I, I saw no temple in the city. I saw no temple in heaven. Why? For the Lord God himself and the Lamb are its temple. In the Old Testament, God was in a building. In the New Testament, God is in us. And when we get to glory, there's no temple. You know why? Because God is the temple. His presence is just there everywhere. It encompasses everything. Now, we have to be careful what we do inside this building. It ought to be holy. It ought to be sacred. But don't, don't try to equate what Jesus did in this story with the church building. Hey, I can't believe it. 
You, you guys are actually selling Christian books out there. If Jesus was here, he'd, he'd turn over the tables. You're just showing how ignorant you are when you send me those emails. You got a lot to learn, Christian. A lot to learn. This isn't the temple. You're the temple. You're it. Which is why we read this in Romans chapter 6. He says, don't let any part of your body, which is the temple, become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourself, give your body, give your temple completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body, use the temple as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Romans chapter 12, therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercies, offer your bodies, your, your temple, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship or your spiritual act of worship. You see, this thing right here, as crummy as it is, this doesn't get to go to heaven. This is just the headquarters of sin. Paul says, no good dwells in my, my flesh. No good dwells in it. When I take my last breath, this piece of flesh is gonna crumple to the ground, they're gonna stick it in a coffin and I'm gonna be six feet under the ground. This doesn't get to go to heaven. My spirit will, but not this. But what makes this a weighty thing, my flesh, is that this is where God lives. And that's why he says, listen, I realize it's crummy. I realize it's the headquarters of sin, but I want it. I want you to use it for holy purposes. I want you to use it for righteous purposes because he lives in it. So let me ask you this. If Jesus were to enter the temple today, you, got anything going on that he'd want to kick over? Got anything going on inside your life that he'd make a whip and say, what are you, what? What are you doing? What are you doing that for? What are you living that way for? Why, why are you doing that kind of stuff for? What, what? You got anything in your life that's crummy? See, you're the temple. You're it. And it's a good question to wrestle around with, isn't it? Man, if Jesus were to walk into my life, what, what, what would happen? It, it, would, would he find me goofing around with shenanigans? Remember, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. He, he wants you, the temple, to be like his son. Ephesians chapter four says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. In other words, look, hey, I don't, I don't wanna show up in the temple and have to, you know, get angry. Paul goes on to say, later on in chapter four, and do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit. Man, how in the world could we bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit that lives in us by the way you live? 
by allowing junk and crud and stuff into your temple, sinful things, evil things, wicked things. Remember, he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness. Maybe that's something you need to kick over in your life. Get rid of all rage, anger, harsh words, slander, as well as all other types of behavior. Maybe we might add, I don't know, get, get rid of alcoholism. Get rid of porn. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is inside your temple that you go, man, if Jesus were walking around right now, he'd have a few things to say about me and what I need to do with my life. Um, we, we, got a, we got a package not long ago. The box came. And I threw it in the garage, and um, well, this is a while ago, maybe, I don't know what it was, about six months ago, and, and all of a sudden, you see a cockroach came in on the package, okay? It's caught one cockroach. And I saw it. I actually saw the thing. It's so hard to see those things, because they, like, hide. But I saw this one. I went into a panic, because they say, you know, you see one, there's like 800 somewhere else just hanging around. So every, everyone you see, there's 800 somewhere. And I'm thinking, where are the 800 at? So my friend, Ben Miller, AAI Pest Control, you know, you get on the horn immediately. Hey, I got a cockroach. Ah, uh, well, you know, next, you know, when we're there on Tuesday, we'll check it out. I said, no, 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 no. No, we're not gonna deal with this cockroach on Tuesday. I said, I want you to bring out everything you got. I want, like a, I want like a tent over my house. I, whatever, I've seen them. Put the tent on, shoot it down. I want guys in there with, you know, whatever it is, raid. You know, I, I want it all done, man, because there's 800 of them I couldn't see. And um, isn't it weird how one cockroach, I want my, I want my garage clean. That's kind of like Jesus in the temple. He just wants it clean. That's what he wants. Get rid of the stuff. Get rid of the cockroaches. Deal with them. Literally, deal with them. And the great thing about a church like ours is we've got Celebrate Recovery here. We've got all kinds of ministries that are here. They're designed to help you deal with the cockroaches in your life. Whatever they are, whatever it is that Jesus might want to experience, expose in your life. And the more you allow him to deal with those things in your life, the more, the more you're conformed into his image. And that's God's goal, is that somehow we reflect the image of God in greater and greater uh, ways. Okay, why don't you guys all stand, okay? Um, and so, Lord, thank you for tonight. God, sure enjoyed being here. I'm just really grateful how this story impacted my life this week. As I read it and reread it and read it again, and I began to think about the things in my own personal life that, frankly, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you'd knock over. There are things that you, you, you would want me to chase out of my life.
or just aren't good. You want, you want my temple to be a good place, holy place. Thank you, Jesus, for doing that kind of work in my life in such a loving way. And I pray for these dear folks, Lord, maybe, maybe as I was talking, you revealed to them something in their own life that they've just allowed to kind of go on and go on and go on and go on and, and tonight's the night when they just need to confess it, repent of it. Thanks. Thanks, Lord, for your goodness to us. And I pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, amen. amen. Okay, live for Jesus, all right? <laughs>